Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing. With the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 257, The Haven Horror. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became a stronger. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, it is never, ever a horror to be in your presence. Ah, uh, and my association with you is a clear haven, so there you go. <laughs> a haven from what? Is it's the new sanity? haven. I, I, uh, the new haven. I like it's that. the new haven. Yeah. Uh, go Bulldogs. Yeah. Uh, well, this is indeed the 257th episode of the show. Um, we were with you in the last episode talking about the BSI weekend, largely concentrating around uh, our listeners and guests who uh, we ran into and who had some accolades associated with them. We did, however, realize after... We went to press after we published that we missed one in this case. Mm. We missed mentioning the Morley Montgomery Award winner. Mm. Uh, did you happen to uh, recall who that was, Bert? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sadly, uh, because it's posthumous, it was Nick Utekin. Yeah, Nick Utekin for his entry in the summer BSJ of 2022, um, which was for Christ's sake a look at uh, J. Finley Christ and, uh, you know, obviously an early chronologist and uh, a very well-read and well-written Sherlockian for decades, uh, contributed a lot to our hobby. And um, Nick, equally so, uh, incredibly well-written, contributed to a, a lot to our hobby, brought us inside the uh, the life of J. Finley Chris there. And it was, a, it was a remarkable piece for the Baker Street Journal. It was almost half the, uh, the issue, and it, it had the makings of a potential Christmas annual, but I know 
uh, you know, Nick was trying to get this done uh, as he was fighting uh, with his terminal illness. And uh, it was kind of a bittersweet thing that uh, uh, that had to happen. Yeah. Well, you know, also, we should say that it was a really a, a great year for the Baker Street Journal. You know, the the choice of a Morley Montgomery winner was not, well, I have no, you know, I've never talked to anyone who's involved in that particular process, but I know from my own personal perspective, simply as a reader, that I would have been hard-pressed to, uh, although I think the award to Nick was, you know, absolutely right. But the, but my point is that there were just a number of very good, very good uh, essays and very good work by some very good writers this past year. Yeah, an embarrassment of riches, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, if you would like to be embarrassed by some of our riches, just go to ihost.co slash ihost257, all lowercase. It is the link for the show notes for this episode. Again, that's ihost.co slash ihost257. Uh, you can reach it via the uh, whatever uh podcast app you happen to be listening to us on it's in the show notes there um, and subscribe to us wherever you happen to be listening to us whether it's on apple podcasts or youtube or soundcloud or spotify just hit that follow or subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode of i hear of sherlock everywhere or our companion podcast trifles it comes out every week where we talk about some bit of trivia or unnoticed item or uh, dig deeper into one particular thing that we saw in the Sherlock Holmes stories. They are there for your listening pleasure. Well, we are pleased to welcome back Phil Burgum to the show. Uh, Phil is currently Vice President, Treasurer, and Newsletter Editor for the Norwegian Explorers of Minnesota. He first became interested in Sherlock Holmes uh, through the Granada series with Jeremy Brett. That's very similar to my own origin. And in 2004, he worked with a fellow Norwegian explorer, John Bergquist, on transcribing and annotating Conan Doyle's story, The Horror of the Heights. And when John was tapped to be the editor of So Painful a Scandal, he brought Phil along for the ride, and we're glad that he did. This uh, present volume, The Horror of the... Not The Horror of the Heights, The Haven Horror, is the 12th in the BSI Manuscript series that Phil's worked on. And this time he's gone from transcriptionist and annotator to editor. Phil Burgum, welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Glad to be here with you, gentlemen. So just as a reminder, Phil, you were with us on episode 217 with... Uh, John Bergquist, and the two of you talked about another entry in the BSI Manuscript series, the Staunton Tragedy, or the Missing Three-Quarter. Yes, that was fun to do, and I'm looking forward to today. You didn't scare me off. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Well, and the BSI Press didn't scare you off either, because you've been involved uh, for uh, uh, many, many of these books. Can you talk with us a little bit about how your association with the BSI Press began and in what capacity? Yeah, this is actually my 12th and currently working on the 13th for the next one. Um, and in the essay, the in my introductory essay to uh, the Haven Horror, the current book, I, I do outline this a little bit, but it started off uh, years ago. I'm trying to, hold on a second, I want to take a look at the date. 
course, I can't find it right now. But a couple decades ago, for one of our Norwegian Explorers conferences, uh, we wanted to give out a, a premium to the members. And it so happens that the Sherlock Holmes collections had the manuscript to The Horror of the Heights, a non-Sherlockian story that Arthur Conan Doyle did um, involving flight and flying very high and coming across monsters up in the upper atmosphere. Um, so we wanted to emulate the printing of a manuscript, uh, but then decided to do a bit of the Baron Gould treatment to it and put in annotations, transcription and annotations and stuff. Uh, so that was released to the people. We did that with the Arthur Conan Doyle Society. Uh, Chris Roden helped out with uh, printing and, uh, and distributing that. So that was the origin of, of what John and I had worked on, John Burquist. Later on, when John was uh, invited to work on a few of the things, it was so painful a scandal. Um, on the three students, I think, yeah. And um, he decided to bring me along to help out. And then that got caught the notice of Mike Whelan. And he said that, Phil, this is either, he, he said to me publicly that uh, I did a good job on it. I think part of it was that he, what he didn't say was, you're one of the few people crazy enough to go through all this, <laughs> uh, line by line, which is probably true. Uh, but he just said, you know, you can be involved in as many of these as you want. And it's been a fun ride and I'm, I definitely enjoy it. And I'm, I feel very honored to be able to be allowed to do this. Well, that's something. And just, just so our listeners understand your role in these previous uh, editions, yeah. what is it exactly that you did? Okay. So what I, what we do is we, if somebody else gets a good quality scan of the manuscript then i go through it and make a very accurate transcription uh character by character noticing you know taking out words and stuff like that or letters uh make sure that the inserts are legible that way you know when you see it yourself you can tell what most of the words are but some might be a little bit less clear so the transcription helps and then I go through and I do an annotations, either things that I find interesting and I want to give a bit more detail on, or comparing it to the way it appeared in the first periodicals. Um, in this case, it was uh, Collier's and the Strand Magazine, as well as the first British publications, and then also the the uh, iconic. Uh, double a duran and john murray editions of 1929 so i i i note what what changes there were sometimes it's the american spelling sometimes in colliers they take out words or paragraphs so they could fit it in on a page that's interesting sometimes there's just mistakes by an editor um but note all those things as, as some of the annotations and then occasionally i I'll put in an essay as well, but that doesn't happen in every every of the uh, one of the issues. It's in, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the sense that I've gotten over the years in looking at the BSI manuscript series is that, on the one hand, generally, you know, Conan Doyle didn't fiddle too much. I mean, with some exceptions to his manuscripts, but on the other hand. 
there was a lot of room for error, you know, between this manuscript being recopied for this magazine. And, and it seems as if, you know, in the various printings and reprintings and republishings, some odd changes were sort of haphazardly made. What did, what did you, what did you take away from looking at the retired colorman? Anything really noteworthy in terms of changes and, and corrections? This one, it, it, it didn't really, nothing stands out in my mind, uh, with the exception of the fact that polliers did do their typical excising of a few words, probably less than I've seen in other copies. Uh, but they do this because when they get towards the, the end of the story and it's being put into back pages, trying to fit it in a column without going to a new, uh, a new page and being able to fit in some advertising. But I'm not recalling anything that pops out. But you do bring up a, a good point in the fact that it continuously amazes me as I'm reading through the manuscript and I'm comparing it to the way that it appeared in books is how closely they do align. I hear about modern editors where somebody takes something in uh, and an editor says, oh, you know, take out these five chapters or totally redo this. The, the stuff that was being printed, and it's either a sign of... Uh, Doyle's talent or the respect they held to him or the fact that editors just handled things differently back in those days. But the, the stuff that is written on the page by Conan Doyle, first draft, he just wrote this out as it came to his brain. Um, that's what appeared on paper. It's just amazing. And I mean, it is astounding. And, and when you think about it, the retired colorman was at the very end of his uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, writing career. This was, was this the final story that he wrote or was it the penultimate story? It was the penultimate story. Um, yeah. 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 I think Shaska Mode Place uh, was the, uh, yeah. the final one. So, uh, yeah. you know, 58 other stories under his belt, Sherlock Holmes stories under his belt. You know, of course, Conan Doyle was a very accomplished writer at this point in his career, 1926, 1927. Um, so it, one would hope that uh, someone of his caliber would have it down by then. But, you know, we, as, as any writer knows, you want to make changes, you, you make errors here and there, maybe you go back, reread things. Uh, and yet, he had this incredible faculty with storytelling that in very rare instances. I mean, what it, what it did effectively, Phil, was make your job as a, as a transcriptionist that much easier. Yes, yes. And the fact that his, his penmanship was very pleasantly legible, that helps. Absolutely, absolutely. You can tell he spent more time as a writer than as a physician. Um, so, yeah. Phil, your, your role with respect to this particular edition has changed. I mean, you still did the, the transcriptions, all of the technical work that you've uh, been renowned for in the previous 11 books that you've done, but you were asked to step up as editor this time around. Why do you suppose but that is? That was a thrill. It, um, they, Bob Katz, Andy Solberg, uh, John Berquist, they, they do try to spread this around a little bit, spread, share the fun, um, and figured it was uh, 
maybe a bit of a reward for for the rest of the work that I've been doing on it. Um, and I was thrilled to do it. Uh, if you don't mind me me telling a story, and this I actually include in the uh, my introduction uh, to it. Um, Please. But when I actually got the invitation to be the editor on this one, um, I was recovering in the hospital uh, after having had some heart surgery. Um, and this was over, it was just before New Year's, uh, two years ago. Uh, so the end of 2021, and of course I turned off my phone, it went in a locker um, after the surgery. And I think just before I was being released from the hospital, opened the, or turned the phone on, all sorts of email messages, uh, including one from Bob Katz. And I thought that he was asking me if I wanted or he did ask me if I wanted to work on the next book. Um, and I thought that he was asking me if I wanted to do my, my typical role of the annotations and, and uh, uh, transcription. And of course I typed back, yes, I'm interested. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, I started getting emails from him saying, uh, Phil, we still haven't heard back from you as to you know, what kind of essays you think would be good and some of the people that you think you'd like to see work on this. I thought to myself, what? What did I get myself into? So I went back, read the original email, and I realized that uh, what he had asked, and you know, the answer would still be the same, and I was glad to do it. Um, but but it's, it, I thought that that was an amusing, inauspicious start to it. And I was able to <laughs> get caught up fairly quickly after that. Well, you know, it's uh, it's these these kinds of happen. First of all, I'm just thrilled, you know, about your recovery. But boy, oh boy, you know, uh, after you go in for surgery or something like that, to come out confused is uh, uh, probably about the nicest thing you could possibly say about yourself. Well, it depends on how confused you were going into going it. in. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but gee, just think about all the other things you know you could have encountered on the phone. You know that would have been a great surprise to you. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you in the manuscript. One of the things that always struck me as odd about this particular story is the profession of Amberley. Uh, you know, the, and indeed the whole title, Retired Colorman. When I had first read the story years and years ago, I thought that that had something to do with military service or, or flying the colors. And it wasn't until I got into it that I realized that colorman was sort of a euphemism for um, paint manufacturer. But I noticed in the manuscript that apparently this wasn't Conan Doyle's idea at the outset because he writes... Uh, about Amberley. He says he was a junior partner at Brick Hall in Amberley, and he wrote originally who were provision merchants of note. He made his little pile and retired, retired from business, he says at the age of 56, which he then changed, and, and brought a house in Lewisham. And that then became, um, you know, manufacturers of artistic materials. And I thought that was really interesting. I wonder what his thought process was in in adding that in at that early stage. And, and that's a mystery. It, it, it really is. Because the word colorman is only used once in the text towards the very end. It, it doesn't play a part in the plot, the storyline. Um, 
uh, personality of, of Amberly. Uh, so it's, yeah, the question is why why pick a colorman? Now colorman was a recognized trade back in the time. It's used in uh, in the census as a, a a person who works for a company and manufactures paints and oils, mm. um, stuff like that. Uh, but you know what point it has in the the story? There's there's absolutely none whatsoever. I do wonder. I I, I haven't thought about this for for checking the timeline, but Conan Doyle did work with a greeting card manufacturer called uh, Raphael Tuck and Company. And yeah, something that you have me curious about, and I should go and check is, you know, what was the timing of his association being on the board of Tuck and Company, and writing the story? I guess it would be a few years afterwards, but maybe he used his experience of what gain, what knowledge he gained in that. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Well, yeah, you know, well, well, but you know, Conan Doyle's father and then his uncle and so on. I mean, he he had an artistic family and he himself did watercolors and drawings when he was on the whaling ship um you know early in his life so he was he um you know, he also had some artistic ability, so he was certainly familiar with paints and things like that and you know it it strikes me that in changing Amberley's profession um you know let's let's not forget it doesn't seem at least it's not indicated anywhere that Amberley himself was an artist. He was, uh, you know, a dealer in artistic supply, essentially. And that would have informed his knowledge about scents and, you know, what, which paints would have been the strongest odors that could have covered up uh, what it is that he was trying to hide. So in, in a way, it actually was uh, much more diabolical and much more consistent <laughs> in making him a colorman with what it is that he was trying to accomplish. Oh, I like that. That's a good. That's a good look at it. Interesting. I've asked and, you before about doing the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe next time around, Phil. Maybe on your next editorial project. You did, however, have the smarts to ask my colleague here, Mr. Bert Wolder, to participate yeah. as one of your essayists. And this this is where we want to get in and explore a few of the essays with you. They, I have to say. Of, of all of the BSI press books to date, this one struck me as having the most variety in the types of essays in a story that is, uh, let's say, largely ignored by Sherlockians. It, you know, it's in the case book. It's uh, the, you know, Sherlock Holmes is on his way out. Conan Doyle is wrapping up his career. We don't pay as much attention to many of these later stories as we might or as we should. And this story really lends itself to a lot of different angles in the uh, essay authors that you managed to put together. But talk a little bit about that, that variety. I am absolutely thrilled with the way that these essays turned out. Um, you know, again, what I, what I mentioned earlier was that uh, Bob Katz, Andy Solberg, John Berquist, uh, you know, they, they give the editor the first opportunity to come up with ideas for essays and people to work on it. Uh, but then they provide some help. And my, my first thought of this was, you know, when I, after 
the initial thrill of being selected once I realized it uh, was, oh, gee, the retired colorman. It's not the greatest stories, is it? Uh, what the heck am I going to figure out to write essays about on this? And came up with a few ideas and Bob and John, they helped with a few more ideas. And I had some thoughts of people and they gave some more suggestions. And in rereading it after it came out, it had been a year since I'd, I'd read the essays and they just, each one of them is just so amazingly brilliant. Um, I just, I couldn't be more thrilled with the way that these turned out. And for something that I thought at first was going to be, how is anybody going to write anything good out of this? <laughs> Everybody who was involved had a top-notch uh, story. But I did want to reach out to a few people that uh, might maybe have not been included before. You know, there's a couple people that uh, have been in previous books. Uh, Catherine Cook, Nick Utekin. Um, both of them have written previously and are of such amazing talent that they deserve to be brought back in again. Um, but others, you know, hadn't done uh, publications with the BSI before. But everybody uh, was able to step up and do an incredible job with this. But I did want to have a variety of people. Um, I was trying for a few more non-BSI. Most, almost all of the uh, the essay writers are in the BSI. Not that that's critical and important. Um, and I did want to spread it, spread the fun around a little bit. Um, but for the essays, yeah, it was just a matter of going through the story and just trying to figure out what is interesting, um, and then giving people rein to do that. You know, I I could give suggestions where needed, but. Some of it, uh, like Bonnie McBird's essay, um, she went in a totally different direction than I would have gone in, but that was okay. And it turned out an absolutely brilliant essay on what is a colorman and the choice of, of and selection of colors and use of colors back in the Victorian day. It's a brilliant essay. Yeah, I really like that one too. I, um, you know, Bonnie, of course, uh, is well known for her own uh, books and art in the blood being the first and and i think art in the blood was even her bsi investiture if i'm not mistaken um entirely on brand and appropriate uh for her and and as you say phil that was uh, one of the standout essays in my mind just bringing us through you know what it meant to be a colorman and what painting involved and and she even had a nod to a uh, a parisian uh paint shop where Cezanne and other uh, left bank uh, artists used to shop that is still available if you'd like to go in there and get your paints made up in the same way so uh, just a really nice job (laughs) exactly so, um, but as I alluded before, we have uh, one of the essay authors in our midst right now. Uh, talk a little bit about the, oh, I won't say folly. I should say the wisdom of engaging Mr. Bert Wolder to write an essay. I will admit that Bert was a suggestion of Bob, and I'm so <laughs> glad that that I took him up on that. Um, and Bert did some astounding original research and reaching out to people and I'll let him talk more about it. But, you know, there's 
there's some brilliance in here and the, the lengths that Bert that you went to to get some interesting information, background on an artist that Sherlockians know very little about. Um, mm-hmm. I really feel that you've added to the knowledge of what what we're all passionate about. We're going to pause here a moment for a quick word from our sponsor. What was Conan Doyle really like? Thanks to American journalists, now we know. And you can know, too, when you get your copy of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle in the Newspapers, Volume 6, just published in January. Volume 6 covers the first month of Conan Doyle's tour of the United States in October 1894. Just four weeks, but it produced 230 pages of articles, interviews, reports from his lectures, and much more. And because of American interviewers, it's the first time we get really close to Conan Doyle the man. They tell us what he looks like, his way of moving and talking and all those little things that form a three-dimensional image of the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Get your copy of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle in the Newspapers, Volume 6, edited and annotated by Matthias Bostrom and Mark Halberstadt, at wessexpress.com today. And Bert, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn the tables. Uh, I'm gonna uh, ask the question to you here because, uh, as our listeners may know, you host a luncheon during the BSI weekend each year in honor of Frederick Dorr Steele. Uh, you you are part of the uh, the Steele Freddie Steele Memorial where uh, a headstone was erected for Steele, and you and other Sherlockians uh, kind of chair that organization. You hold the lunches at, well, we used to be at the Illustrators Club and the Players and now the mm. Sal Magundi. So you are someone who is associated with artists and art and illustrations. And um, th- this, however, did not involve Frederick Dorr Steele. Talk to us about your angle for the Haven Horror. Well, it's it was it turned into a lot of fun, but at the outset, when I was asked to do it, I was pr- provisionally pretty reluctant. What I was asked to do was, you know, one of the uh, the illustrator for the retired colorman was Frank Wiles, and I have been a amateur hobbyist painter and artist and cartoonist since I was very young. And, uh, you know, I just love art. And I've always been a great fan of illustration, N.C. Wyeth and all the great illustrators. And that was a thrill when I was a kid reading things like The Count of Monte Cristo and the novels of Jules Verne and, and the Sherlock Holmes cases, the pageant illustrations. So I'm just a huge fan of all of this. And the creative process, you know, how an illustrator decides which scene to show as opposed to another scene. And once they make that decision, how they frame it up, because you want to you do things in the construction of your illustration that draws people into your images. Anyway, so this is clearly a fascination of mine. And Frank Wiles is the artist that drew, not for the retired colorman, but for the Valley of Fear, an oil portrait 
of Sherlock Holmes that appeared as the first color cover of the Strand magazine. And I've always loved that portrait and Frank Wilde's work. Well, I was asked to write about Frank Wilde's and my first inclination was, well, I'm the wrong person. Nick Utekin, who is in England and who has produced the Paget portfolio and who has also done two, well, a wonderful collection of the original artwork, the artists who did the covers, the dust jacket covers for the John Murray series of the cases of Sherlock Holmes, the individual volumes. Um, you know, Nick also put out for the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, a wonderful publication reprinting all of that art and then updated it two or three times. And I said, well, I'm the wrong person. You know, Nick has got to be the guy to do this. And I, so I wrote, so I sent, you know, Nick a note saying, you know, what about Frank Wiles? And he, he said to me, I know nothing about Frank Wiles. And he had, you know, looked into Wiles a bit uh, when he was compiling his book about the cover illustrations for the Murray, not, none of which were done by Wiles. But Wiles was sort of a closed book. So I, I was reluctant to do anything since there was virtually nothing known about the fellow. And then through happenstance and searching, I happened to find not Frank Wiles, but as it turned out, I found trails to his older brother, W.G. Wiles in South Africa. And then through my research, I found his various descendants. Uh, and everybody was very helpful to me along the way. You know, they would say, gee, I don't know anything about him, but, you know, I've got a cousin over here. And so I would write to the cousin and uh, this one would say, well, no, I don't know anything about him either, but I have another cousin in California. Well, anyway, through that circuitous route, I was lucky enough to find uh, Chris Alexander, who is the husband of Frank Wilde's granddaughter, Anthea, if, I've, if I'm remembering these relationships correctly. And Chris turned out to be a member of the family who was fascinated by um, the history and the genealogy of the family and who had done an enormous amount of research and who had, um, you know, and has today, and, you know, an extremely robust collection of works um, and other ephemera and memorabilia by Frank Wiles. And I was able to put the story together, um, you know, based on some Zoom calls and some, and some uh, cooperation on, on maps and, uh, and descendants and so on. And the story, you know, for our listeners is really interesting. You know, I found myself talking to Chris Alexander and he was telling me, well, you know, James Wiles, a, 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 an early, um, you know, Frank Wiles is descended from, um, you know, many interesting people. James Wiles, you know, sailed with Captain Bly after he was, <laughs> after he was cleared from his responsibility in the mutiny of the bounty. And I, and I said, what? Well, and it turned out to be quite an amazing story um, about the, the history of the Wiles family, as well as, as Frank Wiles. And then I was able to trace Wiles to uh, the Chelsea Art Club and the archivist at the Chelsea Art Club was very helpful. And they had records of his World War I service, which his family didn't even have. They had no idea what he'd done during the war because he never talked about it. And so I was able to put together a profile 
of uh, Frank Wiles, and he had an extraordinary, extraordinarily interesting life, but an even more extraordinarily interesting family, including, uh, you know, uh, one of his relations, uh, Sir Andrew John Wiles, uh, was the solver of Fermat's last theorem. Um, and I found, you know, many of his other descendants who are still engaged artistically and scientifically. And, and it's the story of the family that I really found most fascinating. It's really remarkable because, you know, you, you've taken a very, very different approach to uh, the essay. I mean, this is, a, you know, as, as Phil said, original research, deep research. Um, and, and I know what's interesting, too, is there, there's kind of a parallel in your uh, methodology here because you've written essays before, um, particularly for our little luncheon, about Frederick Dorr Steele, and you've engaged members of his family as well. So how fortunate we are that there are children, grandchildren, grandnieces, nephews, etc., that carry on the family lore and are able to inform us about these remarkable people. Well, particularly about Andrew, Andrew Malik, who has written a, a fabulous essay about the later work of Frederick Dorsteel for this volume. Andrew is the one who's been plowing the steel path since the, the 1970s. And he is the acknowledged world expert in the steel, um, in the life of Frederick Dorsteel, and who has published most, uh, the most about about Steele and his background, and who has, in and who is in contact with Steele's descendants who are who are living today. So I have to, I have to defer to Andrew for just about everything about about Freddie Steele. But you make an interesting point. the 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 passion here, one of the passions that I have, is about the life of the artist. If you're an illustrator or an artist, at least in the days that that this work was done. You know, in in and Frank Wiles died in the 1960s. Uh, Freddie Steele died in the 1940s. But in those in those Paget Steele days, when you were much more isolated, um, getting a feedback on your work. You know, you were engaged in this solitary activity, making these personal decisions, working with models, creating sketches, sending them to art editors. The art editor, you know, might might give you some useful feedback or not. A lot of time, you as an artist wouldn't really hear anything. You know, Steele had this one anecdote where he sort of dashed off this rough sketch and then found out after a few days, they decided to publish it as it was. You know, he was, he was going to do more work on it. And um, it's, it's um, you know, learning about the people and the feedback and the joy they got from their work that I'm, you know, particularly interested in. And, and Steele was someone who, who so valued the feedback he got from authors like Richard Harding Davis and even Mark Twain and others. When, when someone, if an author would tell the illustrator, you know, you really captured this well. What I had written, you've really put that on the page well. It just meant the world to him. And so I was very interested in, in Frank Wiles. And along the way, I learned a lot about the management of illustration and how illustration, illustrative art was bought. 
around the turn of the century, from the 19th into the 20th century. I had no idea, for example, that Frank Wiles worked for a group called the Carlton Illustrators, which were an offshoot of the Carlton Studio. And that whole story about sort of a guild that came together of artists uh, who banded together was uh, was uh, fascinating to me. Yeah, it really was a nice behind-the-scenes kind of approach to uh, this part of the story. You know, and, and I think this it, we're fortunate that the retired colorman, uh, since it does involve, uh, well, I, won't, I don't want to say art, but at least part of the process of art, you know, the, the painting aspect, um, it, it, it gave license to go in that direction. So, uh, Phil, as you think about some of the other essays in the book, and as I said, they are wide-ranging uh, what are uh, let, let's you know just go through a handful here of of essays that are uh, unique, different. Uh, I don't want necessarily want to say stand out because we know all the editors love all their children. Um, but why don't you take us through some of the other essays and and uh, what people might get out of the book? Well, there's there's mention of uh, Andrew Malik who wrote. A very nice essay adding to or compiling some of the information that he's already done and adding to it about Frederick Dor Steele. So we've got both of the artists uh, in Britain and America. Um, a, a bittersweet essay was uh, Nick Utekin. Um, they asked him to write some stuff about uh, where Little Purlington might be and um, uh, Lewisham the places involved outside of London. And he came back to me with, uh, with something very nice, very quickly. And it was after that, that I found out that, uh, you know, he knew that he, he had uh, cancer and was uh, not long uh, for this world. And before the book was released, he, he did pass away, but John Berquist was able to get him a, a PDF copy uh, of it. So he's able to see it in, in digital print at least um but that's a that was a, a sad situation there but um some of the other essays i i just love essays that explain to us about life in the victorian era you know it, it's something that gets lost on us 140 years distant from all that but uh madeline quinonius uh wrote about the telephone because this is one of the stories that's got the most significant uh, use of a telephone um, with Watson calling back to Holmes and Holmes uh, calling down to get information about, about Lewisham. Um, Dan Andriaco uh, writing out about the uh, prosthesis, uh, li uh, limbs and uh, the artificial legs, basically. Uh, just brilliant stuff on that. And it was with the various wars that were happening all, uh, at the time, there's a strong need for this. Um, and so he brings you know, a subject that uh, we haven't seen on any other story before. Um, it's a minor, minor point in the story, but Dan wrote a great essay about that. Well, he had a great leg uh, to stand on. <laughs> very good point. <laughs> Going down, uh, you know, Steve Mason writing about gas. You know, gas being used as the 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 
uh, murder weapon in this one. Um, he wrote a very good essay on you know how de- gas was manufactured, distributed, uh, you know something that we don't think of that much nowadays. Um, Paul Singleton wrote very nice stuff about um, about the two theaters that are mentioned, the Haymarket and the Albert Hall. And also, you know, just for added measure, kind of mentions what uh, what a gentleman might be wearing uh, for evening attire to the theater. Um, and then Catherine Cook, I mentioned her, that she's always brilliant in everything she does, but uh, uh, she wrote about uh, some of the resources that uh, that Holmes would have used over the years, uh, the Bradshaw and the, um, the, uh, the uh, Crocker, I think. Yeah, with the... The Bedeker's the Guide? or Yeah, the Bedeker's as well. So she wrote some great uh, essays, just giving some of the background on that. Um, just every single one of the essays uh, was, was just a thrill to see come out yeah and this this is where you know i mentioned that this is a story that generally we don't pay as much attention to and what a great reminder this book is that there are gems to be mined in in just about every sherlock holmes story so you know we we oughtn't give short shrift to any one of them, even if it's maybe not a as powerfully written a story or isn't as compelling or doesn't have savory characters, uh, there still are nuggets uh, to be mined, and the, I think the uh, the creativity and the um, just the ingeniousness of so many Sherlockians uh, continues to shine through. Exactly. And, you know, just a reminder that, you know, everybody, including, you know, podcasts, we're all doing this for free as part of our labor of love. Um, But we have a passion for it. We have an interest in it. And the passion and interest shows when you get some great essays like these. It certainly does. And just a reminder, while it is free, people can choose to support us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash I hear of Sherlock. We have thank you gifts available and uh, lots of different tiers for you to choose from. So uh, out of the goodness of your heart, it could cost you as little as the price of a BSI press book to support I hear of Sherlock everywhere or trifles. And people can get the book, uh, the Haven Horror, part of the BSI Manuscript Series, at BakerStreetIrregulars.com. It is part of the latest lineup there. Um, Phil, if you're able to, what's next on the uh, editing or annotating docket? Uh, and, and actually, I'm work, I was working on it earlier today. Uh, the next one coming up is going to be The Illustrious Client. Um, Steve Doyle is is working as editor on that one uh, and doing an admirable job as always with everything he does that is that is really good to know so speaking of uh, uh, editorship you know you've uh, had the uh, great honor to work with so many different editors uh, and, and I'm sure you've observed things uh, along the way but talk a little bit about your uh, style of editing, how you work with your authors, maybe uh, what it is that you bring to 
the editorship? This is one area where I can bring my, my work experience in. Um, I work as a civil engineer. I've been a county engineer, so I've, I've had staff. And I believe that communication really works well. You know, lay out to people what you expect, when you expect it, uh, information like that. So I did once, you know, of course, the first step was making sure that people were, were interested in writing uh, for this. And there are a couple people that I approached that they just weren't able to do it. Uh, life was throwing them too many curveballs at the time. Or one person uh, I had asked uh, to write something about um, Masons uh, came back after looking into it and just realized that there, there wasn't going to be much to write about that. And I think that was a good, good call on his part. Uh, but the rest came back with positive note, then had some expectations or laid out the expectations of when things were due. Figured, you know, nobody needed to do any work over summer if they didn't want to. Uh, some people did, but uh, just said, you know, take, you know, I won't talk to you and I won't email you until after summer's over, but then kind of would get periodic updates or ask for periodic updates uh, on that. Um, uh, a recent um, recent editor was Ross Davies. He did Masterpiece of Villainy, the previous book, and he kind of showed me the advantage of the communication. You know, something that I knew from other other areas, but just seeing it in working well. So owed a lot to Ross on the approach that I decided to take, and it worked out great. You know. People, I don't believe that anybody was stressed out about what they're trying to produce or the timeline they're trying to get it in. Um, and, you know, the, the people I've talked with uh, afterwards, you know, I, I was able to get a bunch of signatures on my copy of the book uh, out in New York. And it was interesting that while I was so appreciative of all their work, each person I talked with thanked me for including them in it, uh, which was a good feeling. Um, so yeah. kind of everybody left it feeling happy and, and like we'd put something out that was good. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful model. And, um, you know, I guess uh, it, it is to be expected. Uh, when you're working with a civil engineer, things tend to be, well, civil. <laughs> Sorry. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, Phil, any any last words of wisdom for us before we wrap up here? Nothing I can think of on this, uh, except just just a suggestion that people who want to dig deeper into the stories, um, this manuscript series is is absolutely wonderful. Um, the essays that come out of it are are brilliantly done. Uh, I think that anybody who wants to get a copy of this book is going to enjoy it. Perfect. Well, Phil Burgum, editor of The Haven Horror, the BSI Press uh, latest book in the BSI Manuscript Series, thank you so much for joining us here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. One of the things I don't know that we got into enough 
in the conversation with Phil is, um, you know, just the, I don't want to say thankless work, but but the but the enormous work that goes in, not only on Phil's part as editor for this, but from Andy Fusco and Bob Katz and Andy Solberg and all the rest, you know, as well as the authors, I, it's um, it's just great to be part of something like this where. There is so much enthusiasm from so many talented people who devote, you know, I mean, it takes a, a year really to organize the text for something like this. And, and then another year to put it into production and to get, you know, get it produced. It's, um, it's really huge. It really is. And when you look at the output, I mean, every single one of these volumes is so professionally done. And you, you slip the dust jacket off, and it's a wonderful cloth binding, and there's always a surprise underneath. And sometimes it's a little bit of an illustration, but mostly it is an embossed phrase from the manuscript itself in Conan Doyle's handwriting. Mm. So on the lower right corner of the cover of the book, it's simply, quote, the Haven Horror, end quote, uh, in embossed uh, lettering there. And it's just really, uh, it just feels special. It is special, but gee, now you point something out. Um, one is that on the dust jacket, by the way, they did choose unbeknownst to me, an illustration by Frank Wilde, which is on the cover, which is great. It's a terrific illustration. But the other thing is where in the manuscript does Haven Horror appear? Um, it is when I think Watson visits, uh, now, is, I don't know if it's on the visit to Lewisham or... No, he mentions the newspaper account, the oh, local newspaper okay. account about the, uh, the deaths, and the newspaper refers to their deaths as the Haven Horror. Ah, okay, thank you. Because I believe... I miss that. I believe that um, Amberley's home was called the Haven. Oh, okay. So the, the the local newspaper account referred to it as the Haven Horror. Hmm. So, um, yeah, and it, it's interesting because when I saw that uh, the BSI Press was doing uh, its latest manuscript series book, and it was called the Haven Horror, I'm like, gosh, which which manuscript is it? Which story is the Haven Horror? And I, I couldn't place it at first. And uh, lo and behold, retired colorman. Yeah, yeah. And now I can see that in the manuscript. The Haven is the name of Mr. Josiah Amberley's house. Yeah. Mm. It's it's just one of those nice hidden gems that, uh, you know, when applied to uh, the, the title of the book, you know, as we've seen before, we, we've had uh, So Painful a Scandal and um, Masterpiece of Villainy. You know, these wonderful phrases that Conan Doyle had peppered throughout the canon that we can then apply to so many things. I mean, quite frankly, this is what we've done on the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere website since its inception. Every single entry on the blog has a canonical quote, something that relates to the subject in uh, each entry. And we even do that with every episode here. Yes. So... Yeah, you've done that really well over the years. It's a lot is, of work too. Well, it is, but you know, if you're, it, it, once again, this is part of the artistry. I am not 
uh, gifted by nature with um, any kind of visual artistry. Um, I think I like to think we've done a fairly good job with audio artistry here and bringing stories to people's uh, stories to life for people, interviews, etc. Um, but I, I am a writer mostly, and when I find inspirational quotes, I like to use them. And Conan Doyle, God bless him, uh, just has a uh, a wonderful treasure trove of so many different phrases, so many different terms in the, oh gosh, 1,200 or so pages of Sherlock Holmes stories that exist. Hey, it's a new year, and that means new content. Lots of new content coming from our friends at MX Publishing. Now, it doesn't have to be a new year to find new content from MX Publishing. In fact, if you sign up for their newsletter, you'll get updated every week about some of the latest. For example, every week, Steve MX sends out THIF. Thank Holmes, it's Friday. And in the most recent one, there's a news about a Kickstarter campaign, Sherlock Holmes and the unmasking of the Whitechapel horror. Then there are free audiobooks, including The Keys of Death by Gretchen Altebeff, Sherlock Holmes, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Volume 1 by David McGregor, and The Bird and the Buddha before Watson, Book 2 by A.S. Croyle. That and Sherlock Sunday. Every week you get an update about new Sherlock Holmes books. All you have to do is go to the wessexpress.com homepage, go all the way down to the bottom, and you'll see a little box there to sign up for the newsletter where you can get information about promotions, new products, and sales. Make sure you check it out and see exactly all of the great content that's coming from our friends at MX Publishing. It's time for everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. That's right. It's Canonical Couplets, where we give you two lines of poetry, and we expect you to pull a rabbit out of your hat. Well, figuratively speaking, not literally speaking, of course. We give you these two lines of poetry, and you need to come up with which Sherlock Holmes story it is that we were talking about, even if we don't know ourselves. And you'll recall, <laughs> and that's a pointed uh, comment. We know, we all know who that refers to. Um, I will refer to the last bit of poetry we had, which was this. Lestrade hears the whole story which the client labels frightful. He woke up in the empty house, but that is not the title. <laughs> Bert, <laughs> can you tell us which story you were referring to? Oh, yes, that's the story of the theft of the great treasure in India and the thieves who all drink from the same jug of beer. That's the story Watson called The Stein of the Four. Uh, not this time. Not this oh, time, Bert. No, no. Now, I know. It's astounding that uh, it would come to this. Well, uh, you know what? Uh, we do not have a reply from our pal Eric Deckers uh -oh. in this case. So we're going to have to wing it. But the good news is uh, 
we did have some entries that knew what it is you were talking about. So let's uh -huh. get over. I know it's it's astounding to think about it. Uh, let's get over to the big prize wheel and give it a spin. Watch it coming around and landing on number 13. Lucky number 13. And it looks like that goes to... Oh, Johanna Draper Carlson. How Joanna, whom we, we mentioned in the last episode, met her in uh, New York at the BSI Weekend. Now, she did say, I think it must be Wisteria Lodge. That's the answer we were looking for. But your couplet said Lestrade. And the inspector who hears John Scott Eccles' story in Wisteria Lodge is Gregson. Oh, oh really? <laughs> Holy cow. Oops. Yeah. So, uh, Joanna, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We are not only going to send you the promised items from the BSI weekend, um, perhaps items you did not come across while we were there, we'll send you something uh, extra because you spotted the yeah. error in Bert's ways. Yes, please. Well, I'm always glad, glad to be corrected. We should send her some comic books. Uh, well, I did that a while ago. I sent her all my entire stash of Sherlock in comic books. I so know, I know. she's got that. I'm I'm fresh out. So. Mm. Well, either way, we'll figure it out. Um, so that leaves us to this episode's canonical couplet, which goes something like this. The linguist, quite intimidated by an evil looking truncheon, was discharged at Wandsworth Common about a mile from Clapham Junction. If you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win. And the prize for this episode is a copy of The Haven Horror from the BSI Press. So, something certainly to be coveted. Hopefully people will be inspired by what they hear. So, Bert, uh, I guess uh, you're going to get a couple weeks off here, uh, and we'll, we'll see you back <laughs> here around these parts on uh, February 15th. Ah, uh, uh, the day after Valentine's Day. Are you going to be sufficiently recovered by then? Oh, of course, absolutely. Okay. Any big plans? Well, um, no, but uh, there is. I st we still have some time to come up with. <laughs> yeah, with the way the way the pace of life is going, I don't have any big plans for for you know an hour from now. So uh, we just need some more planning time. Well, that's all right. I mean, serendipity is always lovely, but. Um... You know, it, it strikes me. Uh, you know what you need, Bert? You need the Sherlock Holmes brand <laughs> Valentine. <laughs> Friends, are you lost? Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? <laughs> looking for love in too many faces? Well, that's why Watson himself has authored a number of Valentine's Day cards. That's right. <laughs> John Watson, who sought love over three separate continents will bring Sherlock Holmes brand Valentines to your mailbox today. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, I like that. That's great. Uh, That's yeah. great. 
I just came up with that on the fly. I'm sure if we put our minds to it, we could actually script out something that's a lot more fun than that. Oh, yeah, we need some real Sherlockian Valentine's Day. We need we need some Sherlockian Valentine's couplets for our own line of Sherlockian Valentine's greeting cards. And I'm just thinking, I don't know a good um, rhyme off the top of my head for... Um, the, the second line of whatever the verse would be in the in the Sherlock Holmes greeting card to the to to theoretically a member of you know someone for whom you had great feelings of affection it would mm. have to it would, the last line would have to be something like refrain from poisoning your children because <laughs> yeah, of right. course of course Holmes you know the most winning woman he ever encountered uh, you know poisoned her children for the insurance money or some line like that so we'll need to. <laughs> Yeah. You need to construct a verse around Well, that. maybe uh, refrain from poisoning your child, and then you could start with something like beguiled or defiled. Oh, or, that's right. That's yeah, right. Something like that. Work that's your way right. backward from that one. That's right. I knew. I knew when I first saw you that reviled. I was quick to be beguiled. Uh, <laughs> I hope our warm association will prevent the death of your child. <laughs> Love. Love Sherlock. Yeah. Wow, that, that's that... one of the reasons why he was he was never he was never the first choice on the dance card when. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Join us for another canonical couplet episode of Young Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> no way. Mm. Wow. Well, that could be a lot of fun. We'll see what we can do with that. Mm. Well, in the meantime, uh, I guess I remain the beguiling Scott Monty. And I am the reviled Burt Walder, and with good reason. <laughs> and together, we say, the game's they... afoot. Yeah. Yeah, I got you on that one. <laughs> <You did. laughs> okay, together, we say, the, the game's, game's a metatarsal. <laughs> <laughs> the, the game's afoot! You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes.